Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. When the topic of productivity growth comes up, a common retort is that productivity and pay have delinked, meaning all the gains of productivity growth have gone to the top while workers' wages remain stagnant. So how well do productivity gains translate into higher wages? It's an important question with implications for public policies designed to boost productivity growth. Today, I'm joined by Anna Stansberry, whose work on productivity and pay may offer some answers. Anna is an assistant professor in work and organization studies at MIT Sloan and a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. She and economist Lawrence Summers authored Productivity and Pay is the Link Broken, as well as The Declining Worker Power Hypothesis. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I write a lot about productivity growth and economic growth. And whenever I try to hype my work on Twitter, someone will send me a, a chart they pulled from the New York Times and will say, what's the big deal about economic growth and productivity growth? Wages have been stagnant. There's been this big divergence. Why should, why should I care? Uh, productivity growth doesn't matter. To what extent is that story correct? And to what extent does that story miss something? Yeah, so I think that's a very prevalent story. And I think it is correct to a large extent, but it misses the really important piece of the puzzle, which is, I think, um, and I think based on evidence that productivity growth still matters and that without productivity growth, things would have been even worse. So I can unpack that a little bit to say the basic kind of bare bones of that chart are correct. You can debate exactly how much wages of typical workers, median wages, median compensation have grown. You can debate exactly what measure of productivity to use and inflation, but it is correct to say that productivity has grown much faster than real compensation for your typical worker, your median worker, your production and supervisory worker. That divergence is real and has happened. But then the question is, does that mean that productivity growth didn't matter? That all that productivity growth we had didn't affect the wages, the compensation of typical workers, and without that productivity growth, things would have been the same. And that is the question that I think is often missing from that narrative, because it could be that the transmission mechanism from productivity to pay broke down, and it didn't matter. Or it could be that productivity was actually acting to push up the pay of typical workers, but at the same time, all of these other forces that are happening in the global economy and the US economy are acting to push it down. And then it nets out as not having grown very much, but without that productivity growth, those other forces that were acting to push it down, we can talk about what they might have been, like declining worker power or globalization or technology, they would have been even stronger. And so the outcome would have been worse. The question is whether there's a problem with the mechanism where productivity growth isn't translating into wage gains. Or could it be that the mechanism works, but there are other things working to counteract that? Yeah, so... Um, it's very hard to tease any of these things out with a kind of silver bullet. We've definitely got the right answer um, method. But I've done some work with Larry Summers and then some more recent work again with Larry Summers and with Jacob Greenspun to look at trying to tease these things out in the US and also in Canada. And the way we basically ask this question is to say, well, 
One way we can distinguish whether it's the mechanism that is broken or if it's something else that's happening is we can ask in years where productivity growth is faster, is pay growing faster for typical workers as well? So, you know, you've got some periods of time in the last 50 years, like the late 1990s, where productivity growth has actually been quite fast. You've got other periods of time where productivity growth has been quite slow, like the kind of mid 2000s. And so you can statistically estimate, you know, conditional on other things like the tightness of the labor market, because there's the place in the business cycle. Is this, is this the case? And what we find is very consistent evidence that in periods where productivity growth is a percentage point or two percentage points faster, pay growth is also much faster. Maybe not a whole percentage point, although we can't rule that out, but maybe 0 0.7, 0 0.8 percentage points faster. It's just that in all periods, uh, typical workers pay, or not in all periods, in most periods of that time is also just growing more slowly. So if productivity growth is four rather than two, you might see that typical workers pay growth is three rather than one, but it's still growing more slowly. So that suggests to us that it's not the mechanism problem that's the big issue. It's this other countervailing factors. That's reassuring in a way, right? I mean, what would be the policy implications or the broader implications of a broken mechanism? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I think, I think if that were... If it would, I mean, if it were the case that the mechanism is broken and can't be fixed, then you should focus your efforts only on redistributing the pie if you care about the income of the least well off. If it's the case that the mechanism can be fixed, then of course that's what you would need to focus on. And there may be some arguments that for certain groups, that mechanism is not translating as well as as well as for for other groups. So you know whether this coefficient is 0.7 or one over a 50-year period does accumulate. And so maybe you can get a higher translation rate if you have certain things like one, one policy proposal I'm partial to is um, more collective bargaining because I think that enables workers to share in the profits and productivity growth of the firms and the industry that they're in more consistently. So that could be something you think about. Um, but if that's not the main problem, then you need to be thinking both about productivity growth and about redistribution. Could you give me sort of the basic you know, briefly, uh, econ explanation for how it's supposed to work. How is productivity supposed to boost wages? What's sort of the standard explanation? Yeah, so the most basic econ explanation is that workers' wages are tied to the marginal product of their work. So that is, um, it's, it's a measure of the productivity of kind of the the least productive worker of your, of your worker type. So it's not saying that the average productivity has to translate, but the marginal productivity has to translate. And so if marginal productivity rises, then the pay of workers should rise because firms are competing to hire workers. And so if the value to the firm of the worker rises because there's more, you know, the worker is more productive at the margin, then they will be willing to offer more to a worker to, to pay to pay that worker to work for them. And so that's sort of the fundamental mechanism. Now, if you have less competitive labor markets, there's going to be a wedge, that mechanism isn't going to translate as well. But to some extent, the logic is that the more productive the worker, the more valuable the worker to the firm, and therefore the more willing the firm is to compete to hire that worker by paying higher wages. So if that, mechan if that mechanism, that transfer mechanism isn't broken, then why does it appear that it is that? So what are these other factors that uh, suggest the delinkage. Yeah, so this is um, obviously a big debate in economics, and there will be people that will disagree with my specific take. But um, my take, based partly on the work that I've done there and partly on some other work that I've done 
um, also with Larry Summers on, on worker power in the US, is that one of the major factors for the increase in inequality between kind of your typical workers and the richer, whether they're workers or capital owners, is this decline in worker power that we've seen, particularly in the US economy. So you've seen that this, this, this ostensible delinkage between the pay of typical workers and productivity has been bigger in the US than in many other countries. And the US has also seen a much bigger decline in worker power than in many other countries. For example, the decline in unionization, uh, the rise in sort of what you might call shareholder capitalism. Now, there are other arguments where one might think those have been good trends, but um, from, from the perspective of our work, it does seem that this is related. Other, other arguments could be um, that globalization, particularly the erosion of manufacturing that that precipitated, um, led to a very bad period of wage growth, particularly for middle-income men in the 80s. And that's sort of something that if you're accumulating wage growth over 50 years, and there was a really bad period in the 80s and early 90s, that adds up because you've got to start from a lower, a lower base to catch up. So there was an expectation in the 1960s that high productivity growth would just continue forever. Then we saw a downshift in the early 1970s. And then there was a brief upshift in the late 90s and early 2000s, followed by another downshift. Is there an accepted theory about why we've experienced these productivity downshifts? What's sort of settled in this debate, if anything? I don't think it is. And I mean, I know you know a lot about this as well, so I'd be interested in your take, but I don't think it's accepted, which I think is one of the fascinating things in itself, as we know that over the long run, as that famous um, Krugman quote says, productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. This has now been 50 years, and I don't think we still have a settled explanation for why productivity growth shifted down in the 70s, really across the industrialized world. I think the one thing that we do know and there is agreement on is it wasn't mismeasurement, it was real. And this downshift again in the 2000s probably also wasn't mismeasurement, it was real. And so there's a question of whether the anomalous period was actually the period beforehand, which is the you know sort of Bob Gordon theory that there have been these transformational general purpose technologies in the early and mid 20th century, and we just haven't discovered another one. And there needs to be a new, really transformational general purpose technology to have the kind of productivity growth we saw then. I don't think we've settled whether that's true. And I don't think we've settled whether or not um, things like artificial intelligence might become that new general purpose technology. But that's one explanation that might, might help in a way, in a way that we haven't, um, we haven't got a, a silver bullet for. I would like to think we're living in the anomalous period. <laughs> and we, and we, just, you know, we, we just need to turn the dials the right way on policy, uh, and uh, all of a sudden we'll be back to uh, we'll be back to the uh, uh, the nineteen sixties. Um, I hope so. I mean, I think there's and there's a compelling argument that I think is at least worth trying, which is the argument that the government was much more involved in funding and supporting ambitious scientific research in the middle of and sort of just after the middle of the 20th century. Um, for example, the recent book by um, Gruber and Johnson, Jumpstarting America, or the Mariana Mazzucato entrepreneurial state type hypotheses that basically the state is better positioned than private sector actors to take really long-term big risks uh, in terms of technology development and the support of these developments of these radically new general purpose technologies. And that that's what we saw with some of the big technologies that developed during World War II. That's what we saw with the internet. So perhaps it's worth us trying that again and seeing whether we can generate that again. With productivity and pay, how similar do you think the explanation is across countries and how much of the problem is specific to the U.S.? 
So this is, I think, one of the really useful ways to try and distinguish between these causes. And I should have said, by the way, we were talking about what what caused this divergence? What were the other countervailing factors? I mentioned worker power, I mentioned globalization. I should have obviously also mentioned technological change and the hypothesis that automation and skill bias technological change sort of reduced the demand for the labor of lower, um, lower education workers. So I think when we look across countries, we can sort of think, well, technological change to some extent is a phenomenon that was happening, happening across industrialized economies. Globalization, to a large extent, is a phenomenon that was happening across industrialized economies. Um, trends in policy, like uh, worker power trends, were somewhat common, but quite different across many countries. So when we look at this divergence between productivity and the typical worker's pay, you see, um, you see this divergence happening to some extent in a lot of industrialized economies. You see it in Canada. You see it in a lot of European countries. Uh, you see it in the UK. Um, but to different degrees. And I think the, the smallest degree to which you see this more generalized divergence or, or rise in inequality is in a lot of continental European countries. Um, and so there's this, that to me gives more suggestion that there might be something pretty sizable to do with the type of economic system, the type of policy institutions, because in the more, um, for want of a better word, Anglo economies, um, the US to a lesser extent, Canada and the UK, which have seen much more, much more similar policy trends to do with just how the economy is organized, how, um, pay, bar how pay bargaining is done, you know, the decline in unionization, but also um, the role of government policy in different sectors. It's quite different than the way that a lot of countries like France or Germany um, organize their economies. If worker voice is a significant problem, is that something that can really change in the US? unionization rates are low, and the efforts you read about to change that seem pretty minimal given the size of the economy. Is that a realistic approach? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think there's a, um, I think the short answer is only if it's very ambitious, that the, the current system is very, very small relative to the economy. As you said, so private sector unionization rate in the US is 6%. It used to be about one third in the 50s or 60s. So if, if you've got one third of private sector workers, members of unions, then you've got you know, substantial collective bargaining power. If you've got 6%, it's essentially meaningless for most workers. Um, notwithstanding the Starbucks and the Amazon unionization efforts we've seen, you know, this is in some sense one of the biggest upswells in worker organizing we've seen. But to organize- Even so, it seems pretty minimal. It seems- Exactly. Like, I mean, Even I read so. about it a lot more, uh, but then, you know, and then, when, and then when I'll read further and it'll be this one store here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's it's going to take a lot. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of stores, and there's it's a lot of stores. Long time. If that's if exactly this is, if this is the the path. Exactly. And so I think if if worker power were to be a fix, um, it would need to come from um, serious policy reform to change how workers can bargain. And this could come in two ways. One could be very very substantial reform to the system to enable workers to organize. So. An example that put a bunch of measures that would do that is the PRO Act. You know, there, one can debate certain measures in the PRO Act and whether or not they're good ideas, but on the whole, what the PRO Act would do is increase penalties for firms that try to resist organizing and make it easier for unions to talk to workers and various other things. That's one thing that retains the US system, which is establishment level. So every single store, every single factory organizes separately and bargains separately. The continental European system of um, of worker organizing is largely sectoral bargaining. So that's where 
union representatives and firms across an industry or across an industry within a region all negotiate together to set minimum compensation standards for the industry region. And in that setting, um, it's much more, uh, it's much easier to get a critical mass because in some sense there's there's a mandate from the government that there has to be this negotiation happening. So it's it's sort of like setting sectoral minimum wages, but the minimum wage is negotiated partly by worker representatives and partly by firm representatives rather than set by the government. So a policy shift towards a kind of sectoral bargaining, I think would by in some sense, by definition, generate a much bigger upswell in worker power and in the share of workers that are covered by these agreements. So I think that would be a much more realistic path in terms of having an effect on the economy of course, politically, that would be a huge change to the way the system works and would require completely new legislation. Even given you know, all these external factors, where would we be if we had not seen that productivity downshift that started in the 1970s, but was an, a never-ending 1960s? Do you have a sense of sort of where we would be today? Yeah, so I mean... I don't have the numbers at the at the tip of my tongue, but we kind of did a counterfactual like this in, in one of the papers that I worked on, where the question was, where would the typical worker be today in the US if we had reversed the increase in inequality that had happened since 1973? Where would the typical worker be if we had maintained the rate of productivity growth of 1948 to 1973? And the conclusion was that maintaining the rate of productivity growth, even if inequality had risen, was sort of as important to the typical workers' living standards as the the rise in income inequality. And so, you know, if productivity had grown much more, the typical worker would be, you know, the exact number sort of something like 40, 50% better off under our counterfactual than they are right now, which is a huge difference. So really impactful one. And I mean, it's that's, that's where this cross-country comparison gets interesting again, because We've talked about the rise in inequality in the US being much higher than the rise in many other countries, this divergence between productivity and the typical workers pay, the median workers pay being much higher. But productivity growth in the US has actually been quite a lot higher than in many other countries over that same period. So for example, we compare the US and Canada and Canada has seen a much smaller rise in this divergence, but Canada has also had much slower productivity growth since the seventies. So the median worker in Canada and the median worker in the US have seen the same increase in pay since 1976. US has had more an increase in inequality, so all that extra productivity just went to the rich. So in some sense, you can't just infer what happened from the rise in inequality. You've got to also look at the, at the productivity trend as well. Uh, earlier you mentioned uh, uh, Robert Gordon, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Robert Gordon, who's in news stories, will call him a, a you know productivity pessimist or techno-pessimist, I don't think that's quite fair. But he had a, he, he's involved with this long bet with uh, the economist Eric Brynjolfsson, who will be who will be framed as a techno optimist. They have a four hundred dollar long bet. And the bet is this uh, private non-farm business productivity growth will average at least one point eight percent per year from the first quarter of twenty twenty to the last quarter of twenty twenty nine. Uh, Brynjolfsson said, yes, faster productivity growth. Professor Gordon said, no, that's not going to happen. Which position would you take? The Bernalfson position or the Gordon position? That is a great question. So did they make this bet before the pandemic? Because that matters. They, uh, let's see, when did they make this? Uh, I th- I'm assuming it was 
before the pandemic. Right. So I don't know how the pandemic would affect that, because I think it can go either way. And that the pandemic's, you know, caused this pretty turbulent couple of years here. But I am a, I am an optimist on the productivity gains that the, that the shift to remote work has generated in terms of forcing a whole bunch of companies to invest in a whole lot of new technologies and ways of working that I believe can make them more, much more productive over the long run. So I think without without that potential technology shift, I would be a pessimist. I don't see any particular reason that we would suddenly have an upshift in productivity growth that is something that we haven't really seen over most of the last 50 years. Um, but if these new technologies of remote work are interesting enough, and if some of the new AI technologies start to come online, although they've been promised for a while, maybe we would hit it. So I'd probably put it 70-30 on the pessimistic scenario. This actually, uh, they actually did made this bet during the pandemic, because I noticed uh, I know that Bernie talks a lot about uh, about uh, the COVID relief bill, but I think he's more excited, not surprisingly, about the uh, productive potential productivity benefits of of AI sort of diffusing right. through through the economy. I hope that happens. That would be great. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. I think. I mean, the, the Brynjolfsson-J-curve hypothesis is very plausible, but also we never know where we are in the J-curve. And the J-curve idea is that it takes a while for firms to invest in setting up procedures and purchasing new technologies and changing their operating structures so that they can use them. And you, during that down bit of the J, you have low productivity growth, and then suddenly it'll take off. So if we're in the suddenly it'll take off bit of the J this decade, that would be great. But I don't know if it'll be this decade or next decade or, or later. Anna, that's been outstanding. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much.